Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. I'm also a six-time egg donor, three-time surrogate, and founder of Family Inceptions, a surrogacy and egg donation agency based out of Georgia. To say I've been immersed in all things fertility and family building for the past few decades would be an understatement. And so when I come across new articles or thought pieces about trends in the reproductive technology and infertility field, I usually pay attention. Recently, I came across a pretty alarming article that confirms something I and others in the assisted reproduction industry have been noticing. There seems to be more people experiencing infertility and at a much younger age. It's not uncommon for me to see women and men in their early 30s who have been diagnosed with infertility, which is a new trend I've noticed at my agency. Often, they've been given a specific cause, but sometimes it's labeled as unexplained. Is this a matter of assisted reproduction becoming more accessible and more widely accepted by the public? Maybe more people simply feel more informed and empowered to seek help. Perhaps there has certainly been an increase in awareness and a much more open dialogue about infertility and alternative family building than even a decade ago. I'm sure, to an extent, that plays a part, but I don't believe it paints the full picture. And I'm not alone in that thinking. The article I mentioned at the top of the episode was titled The Infertility Epidemic and started with a quote by Dr. Shana Swan, Professor of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. Quote, most couples may have to use assisted reproduction by 2045. End quote. Most couples? That's a pretty bold statement. And if there's any truth to it, it's pretty alarming. It certainly piqued my interest enough to explore more and turn this question into today's episode. So let's dive into this question. Are we about to experience an infertility epidemic? Dr. Swan wrote and researched the book Countdown, how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and periling the future of the human race. Oof, that's quite a title. Dr. Swan's research is centered around the question of how chemicals in our environment affects the reproductive health of both men and women. Her research has shown the following revelations. Across the globe, fertility has decreased by more than 50% over the past 50 years. Men have roughly half the sperm count today than men had on average two generations ago. And trends show that the risk of miscarriage is steadily increasing among American women. The culprit, according to Swan and others who study the issue, is the prevalence of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, in our everyday lives. Products containing EDCs become a part of everyday life in the United States, beginning in the 1950s, which is also when researchers can trace the decline of fertility rates and sperm counts. Of course, any good scientist knows that correlation does not equal causation, so we just can't just stop there. Before we look at some of the research in more detail, let's get a basic understanding of how these chemicals work and why they could be so bad for our reproductive health. 
EDCs are chemicals that have an effect on human hormones, particularly estrogen and testosterone. The name itself pretty much gives away what they do. They disrupt our endocrine systems, which is what regulates our hormones. EDCs cause disruption by either entering our systems and tricking our bodies into believing they're the actual hormones that we need, or by preventing our natural hormones from doing what they're supposed to do. If our bodies are tricked into thinking they have enough estrogen, then we'll stop producing it naturally. If our hormones are blocked from doing their job, then all sorts of things can go wrong. Hormone imbalance has been identified as the cause for problems ranging from cardiovascular problems to obesity, and of course, infertility and other reproductive problems. Too much, too little, or too inconsistently equals none of those are great in terms of hormone production. Dr. Swan and other experts believe that the most sensitive time for the development of reproductive health is when a child is still in the womb. These chemicals do cross the placenta, so if someone is exposed while pregnant, the fetus will likely also be exposed, sometimes causing long-lasting lifetime effects. Some of the most concerning chemicals that are found in common everyday items include phthalates, dioxins, and pisphenol A, generally referred to as BPA. Phthalates are considered male reproductive toxins. In other words, they are known to be harmful to the male reproductive system. They don't just affect males, though. They can also have negative health effects on women. Phthalates are used to make vinyl plastics softer and more flexible. So think things like squishy plastic baby toys, bendable medical devices and tubing, vinyl flooring, and plastic food packaging. They're also found in body washes, soaps, shampoo, and cosmetics. Another major category of harmful EDCs is a type of chemical called dioxins. According to the Environmental Working Group, research has shown that when a male fetus is exposed to dioxin in the womb, it can negatively impact the quality of sperm and result in a lower sperm count. In general, dioxins mess with both male and female sex hormones, which can cause a lot of problems when a person reaches reproductive age. Unfortunately, Dioxins are pretty much everywhere in American life, especially in our food supply. They are most common found in animal products, including meat, eggs, butter, milk, and other dairy products. If you really want to limit your exposure, experts recommend eating fewer animal products. Bisphenol A, or BPA, is the EDC you've probably heard of the most. Lots of studies have been publicized about the harmful effects of this substance. It's a chemical used to make polycarbonate, a hard plastic used to make things like water bottles, the lining of medical food cans, even baby pacifiers. A form of BPA is commonly used in the manufacturing of cash register receipts. I'm sure you've noticed how tons of products these days boast the label BPA-free. That's mainly due to all the press that chemicals like BPA garnered, highlighting just how much harm it can cause to people, especially children and developing fetuses. According to the Environmental Working Group, BPA has been linked to breast cancer, reproductive problems, obesity, early puberty, and heart disease. 
This is super concerning because a study by the U.S. government found that 93% of Americans have some level of BPA in our bodies. Research has shown that women who have a high concentration of BPA in their bodies are at a significantly higher risk of infertility. Endocrine disruptors like BPA, among others, have also been linked to other female reproductive disorders, including endometriosis premature ovarian failure, and polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS, all of which have become increasingly more common. BPAs are used in a lot of things we interact with every day. They are used in food packaging, water bottles, cleaning supplies, personal care products like shampoo and electronics. They can leach into the soil because of pesticides and other chemicals. EDCs can be found on Teflon-coated pans, in sunscreen, and antibacterial soap. In a nutshell, they are very much a part of our everyday lives, whether we're aware of them or not. Some regulation has been imposed in the U.S., but it's pretty slow going. In 2012, the FDA banned the use of BPA in baby bottles and sippy cups, and in 2013, it banned the use of BPA in the lining of infant formula containers. Further regulation has failed to pass at a federal level. If EDCs are a major culprit in the increasing infertility issues we're seeing, what can we do to avoid them in our daily lives? Scientists like Dr. Swan agree that EDCs are pretty much everywhere these days, which means they're pretty hard to avoid unless we see massive regulation happen in our country. That's a great goal to reach for, but change like that takes a lot of time. So in the meantime, there are definitely some things we can do to limit our exposure as individuals. Here's what the experts recommend. First, whenever possible, eat fresh, unprocessed foods. Because food packaging and plastic products are some of the most common sources of EDCs, anytime we can eliminate those, we're decreasing our exposure. Plastics that are labeled PC for polycarbonate or that they have a number seven inside their recycling symbol can also contain BPA. Not always, but if you're being careful, it's best to avoid them. Next, experts warn against heating food in any plastic container. What about the ones they say they're microwave safe, you might be wondering? I admit, I was curious about this too. After all, tons of plastic products are labeled as safe for reheating and claim that they are BPA-free. According to Dr. Russ Hauser, chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard, just because a product is labeled as microwave safe doesn't mean you're totally in the clear. Here's a quote from the article published on Harvard Health Online. Quote, to get the FDA's designation of microwave safe, manufacturers must test the containers, estimating how long the container will be in the microwave, how much a person is likely to eat from the container, and the anticipated temperature of the food inside. Provided the amount of chemicals leaching from the container into the food is estimated to be lower than the maximum allowable amount, the container is considered microwave safe. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee safety, end quote. In other words, that microwave safe label is the result of a best guess scenario about time and temp when reheating. And it's based on another estimate of the amount of chemicals that could get into your reheated food. If that's deemed low enough, the FDA allows the label. Oh, and the manufacturers themselves get to test the products and report the results. That doesn't sound particularly convincing to me. Dr. Hauser concludes the article by saying that it's probably best to avoid heating things in plastic containers. I definitely agree. The next tip for avoiding hormone-disrupting chemicals 
is to pay special attention to the labels on your cosmetics and personal care items like shampoo and soaps. Look for products labeled phthalate-free, BPA-free, and paraben-free. Another tip, avoid scented products because the synthetic fragrances used in personal care products often contain EDCs. A simple tip you can take with you to the grocery store, skip the receipt. Since receipt paper often contains BPA, that's an easy one to avoid. Especially in today's post-COVID world, it's much more common for stores to offer e-receipts. I think it's way more convenient than having a purse full of old receipts anyway, so it's a win-win. One last thing to be aware of. Hand-me-down baby products are a great way to save money on baby expenses, but use caution. Bottles, sippy cups, plastic toys, pacifiers, and other teething toys may have harmful chemicals in them, especially if they are older. Bottles and cups made before 2011 in particular should be avoided. That's the year that manufacturers were required to use BPA-free materials, so anything made before then should be assumed to have BPA in them. A great resource to be aware of if you're trying to reduce exposure to EDCs is the Environmental Working Group's website, ewg.org. This nonprofit organization has been around since 1993, and they have tons of resources for the public to gain awareness about the safety of our food, drinking water, air, and environment around us. They also work hard to lobby for new regulations and laws at the state and federal level. The EWG has published a list of the Dirty Dozen's endocrine disruptors, which outlines 12 chemicals found in our daily lives that can negatively impact our hormones. They go into detail about each of the chemicals, how they affect the body, where they're typically found, and how we can reduce our exposure. Check it out if you'd like to learn more. The EWG also publishes tons of other consumer guides, all researched and designed to help us know that what's actually in the products we use. Hoping to avoid EDCs in your cosmetics or personal care products? Check out the EWG Skin Deep page, which includes an overview and rating of products ranging from moisturizer to sunscreen and diapers to bubble bath. We'll put a link in our show notes. Now that we've explored more of the details about what EDCs are and how they affect our bodies, let's dive into one specific area of concern, the steady and significantly declining sperm count among males over the past few decades. So what does the research actually say about sperm count and its relative decline? First, let's define what normal is when we talk about sperm. When a couple first pursues help with fertility, the endocrinologist will run some tests to establish the male partner's sperm count and quality to figure out if it's within normal ranges or not. In general, a man's sperm count is considered to be healthy if it's above 40 million. 10 million or below is low, and anything in between is suspect. If there aren't any other problems with motility, mobility, shape, or if the female partner has no fertility issues, then a count of between 10 to 40 million can still result in a pregnancy. It all depends on individual factors. According to the study by Dr. Levine, an epidemiologist at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, male sperm counts have been steadily declining year over year for decades now. The data is pretty convincing, which leaves us with the question of why. First, let's look at the data. According to Dr. Levine's study, between 1973 and 2011, sperm counts fell about 1.4% each year. 
1.4% might not sound like a lot, but over nearly four decades, it translates into an overall decline of 52%. To put it another way, it means that a man in his early 30s today has roughly half the sperm count his grandfather did at his age. Dr. Levine and his team actually compiled their data from 185 different studies with over 43,000 men. They only included studies that counted sperm with the same methods, had a good sample size, and were made up of men who didn't have pre-existing fertility or other significant health issues. They also made sure to differentiate between men from Western countries and those from elsewhere around the world. All in all, it seems like pretty solid research. Here's the conclusion they came to. Among Western men who had no known fertility issues, sperm concentration fell from 99 million per milliliter in 1973 to 47.1 million per milliliter in 2011. In other words, sperm concentration fell by 52.4%. Total sperm count, as in the number of sperm in a semen sample, fell by slightly under 60%. Those are some pretty big and convincing numbers. But how about this for a revelation? Men from other non-Western countries did not have any of the same declining trends. So what's the difference? Environmental biologists like Dr. Swan would say it all comes back to those EDCs, the chemicals that Western society has made so prevalent and that just so happens to mess with our hormones. Others say the jury is still out. Factors like smoking, rates of obesity, declining physical activity, and other things could be at play. Remember Dr. Swan's headline about most couples requiring reproductive technology to help them get pregnant by 2045? By the way, that's really only 24 years away. Those of you with little ones today, we're talking about your potential grandchildren. She bases that statement in large part on the sperm count study I just described. If the curve continues to decline at the same rate found by the study, average sperm count will be zero by that time. Now, is that a reasonable outcome? I'd like to say no, but as Dr. Swan points out, there is no sign that this decline is about to plateau. On the contrary, it's been holding steady at that 1-2% to decline each year. Okay, we were just fairly deep in the weeds with numbers and scientific studies about specific issues like sperm count. Let's take a step back for a bit and talk about infertility in general and what the trends look like. How is it defined, diagnosed, and treated? Who is at risk for infertility and what can be done to treat it, if anything? According to the CDC, infertility is usually defined as being unable to get pregnant after at least 12 months of unprotected sex. It's at this point that most experts recommend seeing a specialist known as a reproductive endocrinologist. A woman's fertility is known to decline around age 35, so doctors recommend seeking treatment after six months at this age or older. Infertility is a common issue, with 7% of all married women in the U.S. unable to get pregnant after a year of trying, and 12% of women overall. For heterosexual couples, about a third of the time, the male is found to have infertility problems. On average, most experts say that about a third of all infertility cases are because of female fertility issues. Another third are solely because of the male partner's infertility. 30% are a combination of both, and about 10% of cases have an unknown cause. Male infertility can be diagnosed by an examination of the movement, shape, and number of sperm in a man's semen. 
Abnormalities in sperm can be caused by trauma to the testes, cancer treatment, certain medications, drug or alcohol abuse, hormonal disorders, genetic disorders, or other medical conditions. Of course, environmental toxins, as we just talked about, also play a factor. A man is at increased risk of infertility as he ages, with men over the age of 40 experiencing more difficulty than younger men. Although most experts agree that fertility doesn't really start to drop off until a man is at age 60 or older. Infertility in women can be more difficult to diagnose, as there are several reproductive organs at play, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, and the uterus. If a woman has a condition that affects any one of those organs, she can have trouble conceiving. Let's take a look at different causes of infertility in each of these areas. First, the ovaries. You can't get pregnant without an egg. Women are born with all the eggs that we will ever have, over a million. They are stored in the ovaries, and when a woman begins menstruating during puberty, at this point, she has about 300,000 eggs remaining. Her ovaries will release one each month during ovulation. That's how it's supposed to work anyway. There are several things that can go wrong with the ovaries and or ovulation. If a woman has irregular cycles, that means she's either not ovulating or not ovulating regularly, which can make getting pregnant difficult to impossible. The most common cause of irregular ovulation is PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Women with PCOS, or PCOS, often have excess androgen, or male hormone levels, which is one of the points Dr. Swan cites in her research about how chemicals affect our hormone levels. Could our exposure to hormone-disrupting chemicals be to blame for the prevalence of PCOS? It's worth doing more investigation for sure. Other causes are thought to be excess insulin, chronic low-grade inflammation, or hereditary factors. Obesity is one of the more commonly cited risk factors, but overall, doctors aren't sure what causes PCOS most of the time. If you would like more information on PCOS, check out our episode 32. Another cause of female infertility is known as diminished ovarian reserve. That's just a fancy way of describing when a woman has very few eggs remaining in her ovaries. Sometimes this is due to disease, but most of the time it's because of natural aging. A woman's egg count steadily decreases over time, which is where the magical age of 35 comes into play. On average, this is the age that a woman's egg supply becomes small enough to have a negative impact on her fertility. It's also when the quality and therefore the viability of her eggs begins to decline. There are other possible ovarian causes of infertility, but those are the most common. Let's move on to the fallopian tubes and the uterus. Blocked fallopian tubes are another common cause for female infertility. If an egg is released from the ovary, but it's blocked from traveling through the fallopian tube, then pregnancy can't occur. A quick refresher from high school biology class. Once an egg is released during ovulation, it enters into the fallopian tube. During intercourse, sperm travels through the fallopian tube, which is typically where fertilization takes place. If there's any sort of obstruction or blockage in that tube, that makes it pretty difficult for the egg and sperm to meet and then travel to the uterus. A partially blocked tube can increase the risk of an ectopic pregnancy, which is when the fertilized egg implants into the fallopian tube rather than the uterus where it's supposed to be. Ectopic pregnancies aren't viable and can be fatal for the woman if left untreated. Blocked fallopian tubes are most commonly caused by PID, or pelvic inflammatory disease, which is a result of sexually transmitted diseases like chlamydia or gonorrhea. Other causes include endometriosis, previous abdominal surgery, 
past uterine infections caused by miscarriage or abortion, history of a ruptured appendix, or other previous surgeries involving the fallopian tubes. Problems or abnormalities in the uterus can also cause infertility. Fibroids are a common issue with estimates showing that 20 to as many as 60% of women of reproductive age have some prevalence of fibroids. Fibroids are benign tumors that grow in the uterine wall. They are especially common among black women and women who are overweight. Fibroids can leave scarring and adhesions on the uterus, which makes it difficult or impossible for implantation to occur. The shape of a woman's uterus can also cause infertility or increase the chance of miscarriage. One common issue with uterine shape is a uterine septum, which is a band of fibrous tissue that runs through the uterus, dividing it and often reducing blood flow to certain areas. This makes it very difficult for the placenta to grow when an egg is fertilized, making a viable pregnancy unlikely. Women with a horn-shaped uterus, known as a unicornuate, I hope I said that right, uterus, are at increased risk for miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, preterm delivery, and infertility. Often women who have this also have just one functioning fallopian tube, making pregnancy all the more difficult. All of this to say, infertility is not a one diagnosis, one cause fits all. It's complex, emotional, and frustrating. And it's alarming that rates are steadily increasing rather than decreasing. A lot of people want to brush it off by citing other reasons or excuses really for declining birth rates or for more people seeking IVF treatments than ever before. In the next few minutes, I'd like to explore these different reasons and talk about the role I think they play. To start with, childbirth rates have declined significantly in the United States in recent years. And scientists, politicians, and journalists have all been theorizing about the reason why. Right up front, I'd like to say that I think the truth is is that there is no single reason why Americans have fewer babies. Instead, it's a very complex issue that has many layers. So let's peel back a few of those. In March of 2021, several news stories came out with new statistics showing a somewhat surprising and significant decline in the number of babies being born. Back when lockdown began in early 2020 due to the pandemic, people made some predictions that all indoor, nothing to do time would result in a baby boom nine or more months later. The reality? In December 2020, nine months after lockdown, hospitals across the country reported that their birth rates actually went down by as much as 7%, pretty much the opposite of what many people predicted. The Brookings Institute predicts that somewhere around 300,000 fewer babies will be born in 2021. That's a huge number. So what's going on? Is it the increase in infertility and reproductive health issues? That could definitely play a role, especially for this year's numbers when you consider that the assisted reproduction industry essentially hit pause for a few months in 2020. The ASRM strongly recommended that no new IVF cycles be started. And so that was pretty much the case for March until at least June or July, a full third of the entire year. Canceled IVF cycles means that all those potential pregnancies were delayed, sometimes indefinitely. Even after clinics began to open back up, many individuals decided to put off treatment even longer because of the uncertainty of the pandemic life. No one really knew how COVID-19 would affect pregnant women, developing fetuses, or newborns. So for those who had the choice, holding off for a while seemed like the best option. 
Now, more than a year since the lockdown, we know a lot more about how COVID-19 impacts pregnant women and babies, both those developing in the womb and those who have been born. Everything feels significantly safer as the world opens back up and people get vaccinated. But are birth rates following the trend of getting back to normal? So far, it doesn't seem like it. Which brings me to another commonly cited reason for lower birth rates, the economy. It costs a lot of money to have a baby in this country. We just published an in-depth article on our website about how much it actually costs to raise a child in the United States. We'll link it in our show notes. On average, it will cost over $200,000 to raise a child from birth to age 18. And that doesn't even account for college savings. The long-term picture spread over 18 years may seem doable for you. If you divide it out, that's just over 10 grand a year. Okay, so that doesn't sound too bad, but people of childbearing age today, mainly millennials, are looking at the immediate financial burden of having a child during the second global recession and first major life-disrupting pandemic of their adult lives. In the U.S., a birthing parent can expect to pay, on average, $11,000 out-of-pocket in healthcare costs to have a baby. Then there's childcare to consider. Unlike most other Western countries, we don't offer working parents much help in terms of making childcare affordable. Many parents report spending a third or more of their income on daycare expenses. On average, it's over $11,000 a year for full-time infant care, just shy of $1,000 a month. Then there's the cost of all the gear like car seats, trollers, cribs, bottles, and so on. Can you really blame millennials for being hesitant to pull the trigger on parenthood? Especially when you consider that many saw their jobs disappear, their wages cut, or their general industries become destabilized during the pandemic. Who wants to start a family when it costs so much and the world is so scary? It's understandable that many people will choose to wait. And yet there are many, many others who will go to great lengths to have a baby, despite all that's going on in the world. I'll admit, my viewpoint is definitely skewed, and if you're listening to this fertility podcast, I'm guessing you're raising your hand to signal that you're one of those people who is all about family building, despite the obstacles. I work with intended parents each day who will move heaven and earth to have a baby of their own. But still, I get it when you look at the broad view of things. I understand that having a baby today can be a huge financial burden, and I am sure that plays a significant role in our declining birth rate. Another frequently cited reason for more women having trouble with fertility is the trend of women putting off having children until later in life. Research shows that after age 35, the number and quality of a woman's eggs decline. And so if more American women are waiting until their 30s or later, it's logical that we would see more people having trouble getting pregnant. According to a 2018 Pew Research study, the median age that women have their first child is 26. In 1994, it was 23. The study notes that this delay in childbearing seemed especially significant following the Great Recession of 2008. Besides economic uncertainty, they note that the data also reflects fewer teen pregnancies, better access to contraception, an increase in women pursuing higher degrees, more equal career opportunities, and an average older age for getting married. Like I said early on in this episode, There isn't a single cause we can point to when we talk about reasons why more and more people seem to be struggling with infertility. Rather, it's a perfect storm of sorts. Women are waiting longer to have babies for a variety of reasons. Environmental toxins may be affecting reproductive health in increasingly negative ways. 
and the economy and lack of public support for working families makes family building seem like a daunting task. All told, it's no wonder fewer babies are being born this year. But here in the assisted reproductive field, we're seeing a steady increase in people seeking treatments. Some of that can be attributed to LGBTQ plus couples looking to start their families via surrogacy or other alternative means, and much of it can be attributed to both higher rates of infertility and better access and awareness. So what trends are we seeing in the assisted reproduction field? According to the CDC, as many as 12% of all women have sought medical help to treat infertility. One particular study showed that more than half used IVF, 21% used IUI, 4% used medication only, and 22% decided not to go forward with cycle-based treatment. Just so we're on the same page here, I want to quickly define some of these fertility treatment terms for you. If you've dipped your toes at all into research on these topics, you know it can quickly start to feel like alphabet soup. Medication-only treatment is often the first option for people seeking infertility treatment. A female patient may try taking medication that stimulates ovulation. Male patients may be prescribed medication to regulate hormones and increase sperm production as well. The next two common paths to treat infertility include IVF and IUI. These both involve medication and go a step further with a more invasive medical procedure. IVF is the acronym and commonly used abbreviation for in vitro fertilization. I'll link an in-depth article all about IVF in the show notes, but in a nutshell, IVF is when an egg and sperm are combined in the lab. The embryo is allowed to develop to an optimal level, and then it's inserted into the woman's uterus, where it hopefully implants and develops into a viable pregnancy. IUI is intrauterine insemination. This is when sperm is placed directly into the uterus at an optimal time in a woman's cycle. The goal is that fertilization and implantation occurs in the uterus rather than in the lab like in IVF. In line with the rising numbers of infertility, the rate of people using assisted reproductive technology is also going up by as much as 5 to 10% per year. As I mentioned above, the LGBTQ community is fortunately experiencing a greater level of equality and acceptance than ever before. And according to a 2019 survey by Family Equality, over 60% intend to have children through the assistance of reproductive technology or adoption. LGBTQ plus individuals and couples are making up a significant share of ARP patients these days, which could certainly account for some of the increase we're seeing. Another reason, and I believe that this can't be overstated enough, is that awareness about infertility has increased in a positive way. More people are talking about their struggle and their unique challenges on the path to parenthood, which means that much of that old stigma is slowly fading away. Public figures, celebrities, your friends on Facebook, whoever it is that is open enough to share about their infertility journey, they are helping to chip away at the stigma. And so when all this discussion about environmental toxins and the economy and many possible scientific or societal reasons for an increase in people needing the help of assisted reproductive technology, I have to point out that the simplest change may play a big role here. People simply aren't afraid to seek help anymore. Infertility isn't a shameful secret that means something is wrong with you or that your body has failed. It's an obstacle to parenthood, for sure, and I don't ever want to downplay the emotional toil it can take on a person and their relationships, but I do think there is cause to be thankful. Thankful that more people are feeling empowered to speak up and seek help. 
thankful that the technology has come so far that thousands of men and women are able to have children of their own each year. Thankful that there are scientists and doctors and researchers hard at work digging into the many causes of infertility so we know better how to diagnose it, treat it, and perhaps someday cure it. If you found yourself on the difficult path of infertility and you're considering another alternative pathway, such as working with an egg donor or a gestational surrogate, I'd encourage you to reach out to my team at Family Inceptions. We've spent decades in the assisted reproduction field working with individuals, couples, and families of all kinds from all backgrounds to help make their dreams come true. You can learn more about us and our mission by going to familyinceptions.com. Our resources will be linked in the show notes. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel, Family Inceptions. If you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.